Welcome to Boomeranging, from expat to repat, a podcast that explores the question, what could be so hard about returning home after years living overseas? I'm your host, Margot Anderson, and in each episode, I will sit down with a former Aussie expat to discuss how they survived repatriation and reverse culture shock, how they navigated the logistics of careers, friends, and family to successfully find their new place at home and all without losing their global spirit. If you have just returned home, are thinking about it, or just love a good yarn told by professional globetrotters, then I have no doubt you'll enjoy meeting this diverse group of Australians. Hi, my name is Simone and I'm Boomeranging's co-producer. Today, I'm interviewing Margot on Season 2, which focused on COVID repats. These are the Australians who returned home during the pandemic, either as a direct result, a planned return, or in some cases, just because they were passing through Australia when it all hit. More than 600,000 Australians have returned home since the start of the pandemic, far more than the 100,000 that come home in any other normal year. So it's perhaps not surprising that in addition to guests on our podcast, Margot and I have been speaking to COVID repads every week for the last six months. This podcast aims to be an insight into these conversations, the challenges, the opportunities, and what you need to be prepared for if you're an expat coming home in the next few months. So hi, Margot. Did you ever think when we started this podcast, which was at the time our equivalent of learning how to bake sourdough, that we'd be finishing the second series back in lockdown? Well, hi, Simone. Um, in a word, no. No, I did not. Um, and I don't think uh, any of us could have foreseen that, you know, 12 months on we'd still be um, discussing COVID at, at the level that we are. Still no sourdough, but um, plenty of stories, though, that we've had in the mix. So today we're coming to everyone from lockdown locations in Canberra and in Melbourne. Yeah. When we started this podcast, I think the media were reporting that 400,000 Australians um, had come home and then that number ticked over to 500,000 and then recently I saw um, 600,000 Australians who have come home since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, the numbers, they're quite extraordinary really um, and I think look, it's a bit hard to get a handle on the on the actual numbers, although DFAT usually does provide a fairly good guide. I think interestingly, what did come out in the recent months, there was an article by a couple of academics in the conversation last year saying that one of the challenges that's really emerged from this, you know, really high group or high number of people coming home is that we really don't have a lot of um, detail on our expat community. Our focus has typically always been on immigration. So I think one of the challenges is if we don't know where they are and what they've been doing, it's really hard for us to appreciate, I think, the opportunity that we've got with the, the volume of people that have come home. I think the other interesting thing is that, you know, for those of us who were travelling pre-2017, we'll always remember filling out those departure cards. And that was where we used to capture the information on where expats were going and why they were going. So we'd fill out a reason for leaving the country and that would be living abroad or working abroad. So I think we've just lost some really key insights and intel and that's probably bitten us a little bit during this time because we don't have a light of sight on where these 600,000 have been and where our other expat community is or where our, you know, our other expats are. So we've clearly not spoken to 600,000 people, but it's fair to say um, probably spoken to a lot more expats than we had, say, even a year ago. Mm. Would that be your observation? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think, um, you know, as a community, we've just seen, you know, an explosion of interest. And look, I think it's in part because the podcast has allowed us to be a bit more global, um, which has been fantastic. So the sorts of inquiries that we are having have extended beyond those that have just typically landed home in, in the last three to four months. So I think what we've heard, it does feel like some days that we've spoken to 600,000, but we've heard from people who have been home since you know March last year and still coming to terms with the repatriation process um, or the you know the um, employment market we've heard from people who are um, have arrived home in the midst of it so like literally in the last month or two who have very fresh and real needs but we've got a huge community of people that are sitting offshore really watching and listening as to what's going on and so we're hearing now from a lot more of those people which I think is really interesting. I think what was also I found interesting is that you held a, a workshop a couple of months ago for Australians sitting offshore. I think it was in Hong Kong. Yeah. You didn't have just only Australians joining the call. You had a couple of Irish people as well. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we've had people from all different sort of uh, backgrounds and, and industries and walks of life. And I think, you know, that's, that speaks to the challenge of repatriation. It's not just an Australian issue. I think when you talk to people who are returning to countries such as Ireland or, you know, our, our friends in New Zealand or, or wherever it may be, when you're, small, when you're returning to a smaller market, the challenges are definitely similar. But equally, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who've gone back to London or back to New York and you know, it, it's not a walk in the park either, you know. It, yes, it's a bigger market and there might be a little bit more opportunity on the job front, but the challenges are still the same. Mm. I think one of the challenges that we're facing, not knowing enough about uh, Australian expats who live overseas, is I think sometimes you read this commentary about, well, Australians should have come home at the start of the pandemic when the Mm-hmm. And I think it goes back to a lack of understanding of the types of expats or the types of Australians who are living and working abroad, and this perception, perhaps, um, the perception perhaps that the average Australian expat is still that young person in their twenties living in a share house in Shepherd's Bush in London, <laughs> um, which you know I, I can't scoff at. I was a young person in my twenties living in a share house in Clapham. Um, <laughs> But, you know, certainly the Australians living overseas and certainly that making up that 600,000, you've got a whole range of people coming home for different reasons. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we have spoken to people with stories, uh, you know, just so incredibly diverse. You know, we've got people who came home as singles. We've got people who've come home with families, you know, those who had their family overseas, who've never lived together as a family in Australia. We've got those who are for the first time actually facing the prospects or living the very real life of being a split family because the per- one person's had to hold their job somewhere and then, you know, the partner and the kids are, are here in Australia. That presents a whole new set of challenges. You know, we've got People who've returned after five, seven years, we've got people who've returned after 30. So there's just such a, a diverse background and walk of life that that's coming back. And I'd really, you know, if we stop for a minute and think about the podcast or the last season of the podcast, the diversity of stories that was in that, I mean, if we think about like Shane Masters, you know, 19 years overseas, you know, multiple countries, returned with a family, was his third time trying to come home, came home with a job though, as did Andrew Whitford, um, who also returned. He returned at the beginning of the year, so it wasn't like he came home as soon as the pandemic was announced. 
But, you know, we then heard of, you know, people like Michael Waite who was here on a, on a holiday and got stuck here with he and his wife and three kids. And that was the same story as Bridget. Yeah. Bridget was coming home to visit family for two to three weeks um, after setting up a home in Morocco. Yeah. <laughs> and um, had to completely change her life basically. Pack up a life from here, yeah, and return. You know, Michael Ellis, he was somebody who was on a DFAT flight. So his story was a little bit different because it was just him and it was it wasn't easy, but he managed to get on a flight relatively easily versus somebody who spent six to nine months and multiple cancelled flights. And, you know, the the differences in stories are really quite incredible. I mean, you know, we also had Nicole Webb, who whilst she didn't come home during the, um, the pandemic, re-establishing her career and getting going again when she was just about to do that when the pandemic hit. You know, there's, there's complexities to all of that. And I think that's what's missing from a little bit of the the narrative, this generic, um, the, the generic narrative that all expats should have come home when they were told to and assumed that mm. everyone was in the same boat and that that process um, was easy. There's been so much focus on the logistics and not really focus on people having very established lives overseas that you can unpick and move. Um, Yeah. And let's remember the first messaging that came out was if you are in a country where you feel safe and you have a job, stay. So the first lot of messaging to our Australian expat community was stay where you are. And so then that changed. And then when it changed, it was so difficult to get home. And then for some reason, we had this rhetoric of, well, you were told to come home. Well, initially people weren't. Yes. And so that's really, really challenging. And you know, packing up a life when you've got jobs and you own properties and you've got kids in schools and pets and, you know, like you've got a whole life established. You don't stop being Australian because you have that life somewhere else, but it's not easy. I think, you know, we wrote an article um, where I said, you know, it's not as easy as throwing a few suitcases and the kids in the back of the car. It, It just doesn't, it's not like that. You know, the complexities of trying to get on a flight are extraordinary, but then so too is shipping your stuff, you know, your worldly belongings. That's all blown out. You know, getting a pet home, it's extraordinary. (laughs) And given that, given that how challenging it is to get home and given that it's so, and then you add the added complexity of trying to come home when the borders are shut, there's no flights. Yeah. I then get really surprised when you'd still hear this sentiment coming out from different community groups that, oh, expats are coming home just temporarily, they'll leave again. And you often hear that strangely in the recruitment market as well, this sort of suspicion that people who've come home during the pandemic are just going to wait it out and then leave again. Yeah. But I think, well, if you know how hard it is to get home, these aren't temporary decisions. People's decisions to come home, I don't think have ever been temporary. No, and I think, look, the reality is that for many people, it wasn't the catalyst for coming home. Like there were already plans to come home and this just expedited the timeline. So people were, there were many people who were on the move already. And look, there's absolutely a group of people that have come home who are still working for international employers and who've sort of said, well, look, maybe we will go back. But that's that's by far the minority. That's actually not the majority. And so when you move lives and you go through the financial and emotional, letting go, transitioning, all of that piece, I would suggest that this is not temporary. I think the big reason that it becomes temporary is if people can't land here. Yeah. 
and they can't they can't find a job here, even though their will or ambition is to do that because, you know, we've all got lives to fund and lives to lead. And I think that's the big motive. People understanding the big motivation of coming home is generally for family and for lifestyle. And I know we've spoken to a number of expats who have still remained overseas. Mm. Ongoing closed borders and uncertainty for the next couple of years have really forced them to think about coming home now because Mm. home used to always be just 24 hours away. Um, Now it's not. So a lot of people are really rethinking their position. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, I think I've said it before, you know, you'd always have a bank account with five grand in it in case you needed to get on a flight and get home really quickly. Well, not only is it not just 24 hours, it's also not, you know, two and a half grand or whatever the flight cost is. It's extortionate. It's really, really expensive. And the other thing I would say is, is that, you know, for many people, they have international spouses and partners. So this is not their home country necessarily, or they, in coming back here, they are cutting off a big part of their support world and their family. So there still needs to be the ability to move freely and to go back because otherwise we're just replicating the issue for for another partner. I think that certainly was the case for Michael Waite and Clark, um, the guests on the podcast who've both got American spouses and obviously children who who are dual nationals as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the case of Michael, like his wife is a paediatrician, you know, very well qualified, career is really important to her. She's not allowed to work here. I mean, I find that extraordinary. You know, they're in a regional community where they're crying out for doctors and for paediatricians and she can't work. And so when we make the process so complex for her to be recognised here and costly, like it's cost Mm. prohibitive, it becomes easier to go back overseas and that's our loss you know that's if 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 we are going to make it a caveat that you know it's only going to be easy if you're an australian national i get that we've got compliance and we've got things that we need to look at but it's the time frames and the cost that's involved that's just so extraordinary it just seems bureaucratic and i think we're starting to see that written a little bit more in the media too about what was once suggested as a brain gain for Australia becoming a bit of a brain drain Mm. if it becomes difficult for the expats who have come home to really land here and I think that goes for both them professionally and their partners. Oh absolutely because you know you need to thrive not just as an individual but as a family unit and so we know that you know if you think about the um, expat assignments so corporately put on an organizational hat for a minute we know that the reason that those assignments fail the highest reason that assignments fail is because of an unhappy partner um, or a family not landing it's no different when we come back we can't all we can't be ha- truly happy if three quarters of our family are not happy. <laughs> it just throws up a whole lot of different challenges. So, mm. but we're still hearing stories of people failing, coming home and failing to connect. I think locally, particularly mm. career wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are hearing some green shoots or seeing some green shoots, I should say, which is encouraging. There's some recent high profile appointments that I think should um, offer a beacon of hope to people that were at least narrative a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, they were um, like the CEO roles for um, MCA and Opera Australia, which was fantastic to see, though, the the spotlight shone on those, um, those articles, or sorry, on those people. But I, I think we also need to hear some of the 
good news stories at a different level. So fantastic that we've got leaders coming back in. But, you know, we've also got really highly well-credentialed marketing, you know, consultants or GM of supply chain or, you know, like it could be any sort of mid-tier role where those sorts of skills and knowledge and networks just have such a potential to power boost our businesses and economy that we really need to be understanding what the opportunity is and how we tap into that. I mean, I'm passionate about building pathways between experience and employers because if we can't see it, you know, we don't strive for it. It's that good old adage. It's the same with this. If we don't know what truly exists, why? how are we going to tap into it? How are we going to open the doors for it? So I think we've got to build up our own awareness of what this skill set is and knowledge set and networks and et cetera that are basically being presented to us. We don't have to buy this capability in. You know, we don't have to spend loads of money. There are people here. But we're still hearing stories. I know you've shared with me stories of um, expats who've come home who are struggling to connect locally. Yeah. And that's at the moment given, and which I find a little bit surprising given that we're reading that Australia is facing a skill shortage. Mm. The Australian government wants to invest in companies to, uh, foreign companies to invest in setting up businesses in Australia. There's a huge focus on our startup scene. Mm. I find this strange that we've got this story being told on one end and then you're telling me stories that you're still hearing candidates struggle when they get here. Where do you think the issue is? I think it's at a hiring manager level internally in the organisations. So whilst we might have leaders espousing and saying that they're really open to international experience, when you've got hiring managers that, you know, further down in the organisation that don't know how to recognise, leverage and see the composition of skills that people bring to the table, um, they're very, very focused on a skill or a skill set. It's very narrow. And I think we need to broaden our perspective on how we recruit for not just the skills but the motivations and the potential and the capability that people bring in as a whole. What are the, some of the stories that you're hearing from people at the moment to that point? Where are they having challenges or what kind of feedback are they getting from the local market? Yeah, so in, a, in an interview process or in a conversation process, you know, the, the, the good old objections that we've heard for years are still coming up. Where's your local Australian experience? Oh, okay, well, so you've been out of the market. You know, I find that an extraordinary comment because invariably people who've been working overseas have stayed firmly within their market. They've just been out of the Australian market. And so I think people are struggling to, because they may, if you've got somebody who hasn't lived abroad recruiting, I think sometimes the perspective is not wide enough to understand truly what people bring to the table. Conversely, I think for many of us who have lived overseas, our careers and opportunities have unfolded quite organically and we have found ourselves in a bigger market which is rich with opportunity and our careers have gone off and we've gone off on a trajectory that's been fast and rapid and huge. And we haven't often had to consciously stop and think, how am I positioning myself to this recruitment process? So what happens is we come back and all of a sudden we've got no networks and people don't know who we are. So 
we have to really get our positioning really well honed. So I think there's probably a little bit of work on both sides that needs to be done, but it does come down to, I always talk about localising your global story. How do you tell your story here with real market relevance and and career relevance so that you are well positioned to embrace the opportunity or to identify opportunities in the marketplace? So once a person comes home and they've spent a bit of time localising their most recent experience abroad, Mm -hmm. what are the other tips you would give them? Mm. So firstly, I think one of the things, just to go to that localising your global story, Often people who've worked overseas have not been working in Australian brands. So if you've been, I don't know, sitting offshore working um, in, let's say, Tesco. Now, I mean, many of us know what Tesco are, but like if you've been sitting in Tesco's, somebody here may not know who Tesco's are. How are you telling your story with real relevance here? Find an equivalent brand anchor it to that story, talk about the problems that you're solving because the problems are universal. They're not just, you know, specific to one country or one region. So when you can anchor your experience to a brand here that people understand, be careful of the role title because if you've been sitting offshore in a role title that typically doesn't exist here and you're the VP of XYZ, you know, all of a sudden that can sound huge and monumental and people here will immediately go, oh, we don't have anything that big. Oh, no, 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 you know, you'll be bored in two seconds. So we've got to really think about the language that we're using in localising our story. And I think, sorry to hone in back on that, but I think that's a really, really important piece because if we don't help people understand it, they will dismiss it and then we find ourselves further outside of the market. I was just going to follow up on that. How do you help people answer that question? Because I know this is a common question when the interviewer or the recruiter will say to an expat, particularly if they don't completely um, follow their international experience, oh, you'll be bored in this role. This role will be too small for you. And often the person coming home is not looking for a like-for-like role because they're realistic that their regional Southeast Asian role is not going to translate to the Australian market. How does... How do you help that candidate answer that question when it's almost like the answer's being made for you? Yeah. Well, I always think, and this is not just with expats, but with people when I work with them in transition, you've really got to think about what can I do? So what knowledge and skills do I bring to the table? What will I do? What are my motivators and, you know, values, I guess? And by will I mean, you know, like I don't want to go back and do that. That was what I did 23 years ago. Like, okay, well, that's fine. But like what will you do and where do I best fit? And fit is, yes, culture and style, but it's also about what phase of life cycle the business is in. So if you're somebody who's been working in Southeast Asia on massive transformation agendas, okay, well, you need to start talking to transformation because what you're inspired by and what you're challenged by and what you want to do is be part of, you know, reinvigorating a business or reinvigorating a business line or a business unit. So it's talking about the challenges that you enjoy solving rather than the scale of things. And I think, you know, I've worked with recently with a couple of people who've come out of major transformational um, roles and they've ended up in private business here in Australia who where those organisations are in rapid growth mode and they're looking for somebody to help them solve the problems that they've actually just solved offshore 
It might be that the company is looking to expand their market presence. Well, invariably, if you've been working in Asia, you've been about expansion through the Asian region. Yes, it's a different region that you're doing it here, but the challenge is the same. You want to expand your presence. So how do you how do you articulate that with real confidence and clarity so that the person on the other side of the table, be it an external recruiter or an internal hiring manager, goes, okay, I get it. Okay, and so you've been able to take people on the journey. So you can talk about leadership. You can talk about actual structure and strategy. You can talk about all the different types and pieces of your role so that you're presenting, you know, something, you know, much bigger rather than just saying I'm a supply chain technical expert you know, or um, a marketing, I'm really competent in this X, Y, Z of marketing. Another question a lot of expats face is um, from recruiters is about networks and they'll say, well, you've been out of the market and therefore you don't have any local networks or you don't understand how this business in the industry, you've been out of touch a little bit. How do you counsel people on handling that question? Well, I think it's also about being able to demonstrate the capability to build networks quickly and purposefully. And one thing I do know that experts do really well is they build networks really quickly. If you can pack up your life and move to somewhere where you know no no one and you can build your network really quickly and get going and be successful overseas, so professionally and personally, I think it's about demonstrating the competency of being able to do that. I also think too this is where a little bit of research is really helpful on behalf of the expat. So knowing that Who are the key players in the industry? Who are the networks that you need to tap into? So that even if you're not well networked right now, you've got a game plan as to how you're actually going to build your network and you know who the key, as I said, the key players are. Um, I think it helps, again, that helps localise things. Look, that might be industry bodies. It might be through you know, old networks that you can reinvigorate or it might be where you go, actually, I know that I need to build out my network at this this level and this is how I'm going to do it. So share with people your strategy. But I think, you know, past experience can be a great indicator <laughs> of, of, you know, future success because you've got the skills and knowledge of how to do it, knowing how to do it. I thought what I learned too from some of the podcasts was the power in using your international network locally. So Shane Mark. Um, an interesting story, case in point, he tells the story about, you know, I think after trying three times to come home, um, he had luck when he identified who his network was at home and decided to try and contribute to that network before he was looking for a job. Yeah. So he did that by writing industry papers, by um, speaking at events, but also by saying to people, look, I'm not coming home tomorrow, but I am coming home in a few years' time. And I'm currently sitting in America or I'm currently here. He's been in America, he's in France, he's been in a couple of different places. But use me if you need to tap into the market here. I'm available. And so I think that gesture of being open and being reciprocal in how you can actually um, contribute for each other's success is really, really helpful because one of the things that a lot of us feel when we come home is like, oh, gosh, I don't really know how to reach out and ask for that help you know and I don't want to seem disingenuous I haven't spoken to that bloke or that person you know for the last five or seven years or 15 years when we last worked together that's okay be honest about that approach people and say look it's been a long time since we've spoken and not everyone that you're 
looking to meet or looking to reconnect with, it's not all about getting a job. It's actually invariably about educating yourself on the market. So your networks are really, really important to help you educate yourself on what's going on. What are the challenges? What are the unspoken challenges? Yes, I'm reading this in the media. How does that land in your organisation? You know, really finding out that on the ground um, intel. Yeah. I think that can work across a range of different industries. I know somebody we didn't speak to on the podcast, but I have spoken to as part of the Instinct Network group, was uh, a young woman who was working for Facebook in London, Mm -hmm. um, came back. She is working in data and analytics Mm -hmm. and really struggled initially to find traction with the workforce. So what she did was create her own networking group around data and analytics, um, young women in data analytics, because she was really passionate about her industry and she also wanted to to keep that dialogue happening even if she wasn't currently working. Yeah. And I, I just really admire her that she created her own network. Yeah. <laughs> it was a channel or a vessel for her to share knowledge as well. So it wasn't like she was setting it up just so that she could be fed. She was really happy to feed others with her knowledge and connections as well. So I think that, I mean, it was incredible what she did and and what she is doing. So um, I think there's a number of ways that people can certainly look to create that. But, you know, it's like anything, it takes time. And that's why I'm such a believer that if you think you're coming home in six months or 12 months, start the plan now start having those conversations now identify who you should be talking to and approach them you know it's why you know the InSync network was formed it's about getting back in sync in life and in business here in Australia and you know people are really generous who are part of the community you know they will share their knowledge whether they even our community of people who've been home five and ten years you know they they really willingly share knowledge expertise and their networks so it's that becomes that ripple effect then, you know, um, about, you know, people helping each other because they, A, they understand the challenge. B, when people know what they're asking for and are clear about it, others find it easy to help. You know, I often say our networks genuinely want to help us. They just don't know how. So we've got to make it easy for them too by knowing what we want to ask, by getting really clear about what we need. And on that note, just a reminder, if you are either just returned home or you're sitting offshore and you're looking for a a bit more information, we are trying to share a lot of information via um, LinkedIn, via Instagram, via Facebook. Mm. And that's a combination of articles that we think might be of help, um, articles that show um, the, the green shoots of getting great jobs um often it's advice that margot you've written for different publications or it's actually stories of other repads i think the last couple of months have been uh, we've had numbers of conversations with different people and their stories are really helping Um, trying to share as many different other stories of australians um who are in similar positions and 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 techniques and um tips that they are share they are very generous in sharing I think the other thing that I'm really excited about is, you know, the community, whilst it started really small and um, locally here just in Melbourne, I mean, it's expanded, you know, throughout Australia. But, you know, for those people who were part of our early um, story, they're now in jobs. They're now now hiring managers. And they are coming back to me and saying, Margot, who do you know? They remember. Yeah, they remember. Yeah. And so... I think one of the things that I'm really hopeful for is that the more 
stories and good news stories that we can share and the more expats that we see coming home the more empathy and understanding we have about how hard it can be and they will be excited about hopefully capturing some of this expat skill set and knowledge and networks for their businesses and where they are so I'm excited that hopefully we're going into the next wave where we see that domino or cascade effect yeah Well, we're nearly at the end of this podcast and uh, we're planning for Series 3, which hopefully we can record not in lockdown, but um, I'm speaking too soon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, we're very much looking forward to it. And what we'd really love to hear is, you know, what, what do people want to hear about? You know, we actually would love to know what are your biggest concerns? What are your biggest challenges? What stories are you enjoying? Because, you know, we love telling stories. We've got a great community that we can shine the spotlight on. Um, So let us know. So until Series 3, thank you, Margot. Thanks so much, Simone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, share it with your friends and family, and subscribe for future episodes. For more information on our guests, please head to our website, insyncnetworkgroup.com, where you can check out the show notes and also find more information about our fabulous community and membership offerings.